0: From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia. I'm Sage Tangway. This episode features the question-and-answer session after Emily Rutherford's lecture entitled Historians Will Say They're Just Good Friends, University Histories, Queer Histories. If you haven't already listened to the full lecture, go and do so right now. Without further ado, here we go.
1: Yeah, we, we have time for questions. I'm just gonna try to get the microphone. Maybe it, you can sort of shout we can. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, might, it might
2: be better, actually, if. Folks in the audience feel are able to project, and then I'll talk into the microphone, and then that will pick up the. Yeah, great. Thank you so much.
3: Um, I'm fascinated by the word spinster in this in this story, and to it, you know, what sort of. um, uh, value it holds in terms of, you know,
2: is it you know, a, a, a good thing, a bad mm, thing, mm-hmm. you know, what, is, what kind of thing is it? Where, yeah. what,
3: what kind of things can be placed in it, especially in the context of, of uh, sort of a queer history mm-hmm. approach because you, I loved your characterization of sort of allowing space for, you know, what is this, but we have these little words. I, I was also reminded of uh, Ursula Le Guin uh, insisting that the, the term, crone is an honorific, mm, mm-hmm. right, you mm-hmm. know, that this, yeah. is, this is something, you know, and that places kind of the idea of spinster in a different socioeconomic space, maybe, yeah. uh, too. So there's. So I'm wondering if you could just comment on the role that that word plays, and yeah. those kinds of terms play in this dynamic. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think one really important, just to pick up on your last point about class and socioeconomics, right, is one really important part of this story is these are all very affluent women. And they, um, I mean, to some extent, they are the ones who are making the free choice to kind of, um, they have a choice, right? They don't have to get married to get financial support from a husband, and they also don't have to work, right? In fact, they basically, you know, Sidgwick dies, but Fry and Rackstraw choose to leave paid employment in order to take up volunteer work um, because they have this family, you know, inheritance um, that they get. So they have kind of more, if we're looking for sort of agency and choice and whatever, these are the women who have the choice in a way that many of their peers who, you know, uh, like one really common discourse about the spinster in this period is that they're impoverished, that they're sort of ground down because they didn't luck out and find a husband or maybe they were too brainy to find a husband. And, uh, and so they have to work in a job that's going to be much lower paid than the kind of jobs men would have access to, and they're going to have this kind of miserable existence. And they have no choice but to have a roommate, right, because they can't afford to live on their own. Um, you know, most of the discourse in England in this period is going to be pretty, I mean, across this whole long period that I've talked about, is going to be pretty dismissive and snide about spinsters. Um, that's not like a positive thing to be and there isn't really a kind of um, you know there's some attempt to push back against that but there I don't know that there's really a successful kind of reclaiming of it as a positive way to be um, uh, and I you know but I think what we can see uh, really by the like tragedy with which fry interprets her own life is how the wider culture by the 1950s, right, doesn't allow this possibility for her to conceive of her life as like positive, successful. Uh, you know, she's done all of these incredible things. I cannot emphasize what an accomplished, like, famous, senior, powerful person she is by the end of her life. Uh, but she's evaluating her own life, and she's like, "Well, I didn't get married and have kids, and that's what mattered." Um, and she's like, "It really sucks to be a single woman. Like, society ostracizes you. There isn't like a natural space for you to fit in." And in the book, I argue that that really reflects how much society has changed by the 1950s to sort of have this kind of nuclear family ideal be paramount and to be kind of marginalizing people who don't fit into that.
1: Uh, you said in the, you argued that we should take the just out yeah. um, of the statement. Like, historians say they were just good friends. But I feel like the meme especially is, like, a very organic response to, like, current students' um, Experiences of watching very obvious and even just literal dyadic uh, di- um, queer relationships yeah. being erased in these classes, in especially in higher education. And I was wondering if you want the just taken out because of these more complex relationships. How would you like? continue to express that frustration and continue building towards a more queer, inclusive historical record when it comes to what people are learning in school? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so um, this person asked about, um, you know, if I'm trying to complicate the picture, right? I mean, tell me if you think this is an accurate characterization, but like if I'm trying to complicate the picture and tell us to take the just set of just good friends, like how would I respond to the kind of political activist project that the meme is about, right? Which is like responding to the erasure of queerness in the past and trying to make space for queer readings of the past Would that. Is that fair? Um, Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the things is like, yeah, the meme is funny. It can be funny, it can be charming, right? It can be something that people relate to and connect with. And that's great, you know, like, if we see that and it resonates with us, And um, it prompts us to learn more about queer history, or it just prompts us to be like, yeah, I relate to that, like, that's great, you know? Um, I think what I'd want us to do, uh, or what what I ask my students to do, you know, is to think about the systems of gender and sexuality that people in the past were using to make sense of what to us seemed to be dissonant or queer, right? Uh, kinds of intimacy or desire or sex or whatever it might be. Um, And so, and what we might find when we do that, like that's doing queer history, right? Uh, And what we might find when we do that is that it's not just a question of revealing the obvious queerness that a homophobic person has erased, right? But it might be a question of understanding, well, how did people in this cultural context think about gender, right? Did they have more than two gender categories? Um, did they have uh, forms of you know, what we might call romantic friendship that were sort of socially you know, acceptable that uh, uh, even though they seem queer to us today, right? And what that tells us is not only, okay, well, people had different ways of expressing desire and intimacy and whatever in the past, but sometimes those, those forms of desire and intimacy were normative, right? They weren't marginalized, and therefore they kind of weren't like queer relationships today, right? If, the, if that society is saying, well, the desirable way to be is you're a sort of knight in the crusades and you have your sworn brother who's your, you know, buddy that you die for, right? Like, and that's celebrated, right? That's actually not the same thing as, uh, you know, like, let's say I'm sort of walking down, you know, the street holding hands with my partner and someone shouts a slur at me, right? Those aren't the same thing, you know? Because they're not happening in the same cultural context and they're not sort of treated as normative or not normative in the same way, right? So I think that's, as a historian, that's what I want to do is to kind of immerse us in those contexts and try to understand those systems and structures. But that doesn't mean that we can't, like, emotionally connect with something that seems meaningful to us because we relate to it, right? Those things can both be true. Uh, And, um, you know, and also we can, you know, one can say to one's professors, like... Look, I don't think you're engaging with the queer history field, or I don't think you've thought expansively enough about what the possibilities for gender and sexuality are in this context, right?
0: I was also struck by the way that you like, said, take the just out of just good friends, because that reminds me of like, current ways of, uh, current sort of messaging that the aromantic and asexual community mm-hmm. want to understand relationships. Is that having like a just good friends makes that sort of implies that friendships are inherently inferior to romantic or sexual relationships, um, and like removing that just <laughs> would mean that friendships can be yes just quite as um, fulfilling, uh, intimate, whatever as like romantic and sexual relationships, and of course there would be many people historically. Um, as in the present day, who don't desire romantic or sexual relationships. Um, this doesn't really have a question, it's just <laughs> something that, you're, that you reminded me yeah, of. Yeah,
2: great. I mean, I will summarize that for the microphone, as I understand is now my role to do, and uh, <laughs> and also, you know, respond quickly to So the, the, the comment was about... Uh, how taking the just out of just good friends might sort of be a helpful tool for thinking about asexuality today and uh, thinking about, you know, not privileging romantic or sexual relationships at the expense of other kinds of intimacy uh, um, or sort of connection with other people. And I think that's a great example of a way that, you know, we can still preserve historical specificity while using the past as a tool to inform how we think about our categories and our relationships in the present, right? So that's, you know, it's a really helpful contribution. So in your presentation, in your work, you're looking at uh, privileged women mm-hmm. who, who had the lives that you just described. Mm-hmm.
3: Very interesting, thank you very much. But what about the British laws that prosecuted homosexual acts and that were pursued at least through the 1950s with mm-hmm. prosecutions? Did they
2: affect women who might have been caught in the relationships the same they did men? Have you done anything yes. in parallel to what you focused on? Yeah, yeah, okay, so the question was about the legal status of same-sex sex in Britain in this period. Uh, favorite topic of mine, so um, mm-hmm. sex between women is never criminalized in Britain, uh, and um, you know, that's briefly, there's a very brief debate in the 1920s about whether it should be criminalized, that doesn't really get anywhere. Um, It sort of flies under the radar and that's because, okay, you know, this is this is like my undergraduate lecture about sodomy law, like, uh, which is a thing that I do. Uh, That's because English criminal law conceives of sexual offenses basically as, sorry, I have to get anatomical, as involving a penis, right? So, um, uh, the sex between men was very consistently criminalized in um, all of the territories of the British Isles uh, and didn't reach like sort of sex law relating to male same sex sex, didn't reach legal parity with sex law um, pertaining to opposite sex sex until I think about the year 2000. Um, So there was a sort of really gradual process of um, first like lessening the criminal penalties for the prosecution of men who had sex with men and then sort of fully decriminalizing that and equaling uh, how how things like, for example, rape are treated with relationship to opposite sex sex in in English law and law of the other four nations of the British Isles. Um, uh, That also is a story that is very classed, right? That is structured by um, people's ability to insulate themselves from persecution either because, um, so like ways that you can sort of protect yourself from the law, right? Is if you have lots of privacy, right? If you have a private home in which you can have sex and no one's gonna catch you, right? As opposed to if you're having sex in a park or something like that, right? Uh, Another way is if you can pay off blackmailers, right? Uh, And um, that's a really big story in the sort of criminalization of sex between men in England. Um, And so it's a very uh, kind of unevenly persecuted prosecuted crime uh, and uh, a lot of sort of elite powerful men have a lot of impunity to, um, you know, kind of lead their lives Uh, and a lot of working class men uh, and also, you know, so so people who might be visibly gender nonconforming, right, people who look suspicious in the eyes of the law uh, are gonna come under that sort of eye of suspicion, but then may also actually be leveraging those structures to benefit themselves, for example, by blackmailing a wealthier man. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a story about how sex between women, and also actually more importantly, kind of visible gender nonconformity among women, among sort of people who are assigned female at birth who are non-binary or transmasculine, we might now say today, right, who are, uh, you know, sort of visibly suspicious, right? There's ways that they can be ostracized socially, ways that they can sort of be targeted other ways, like through obscenity law instead of through sex law. Um, but, uh, but it's important that there's this distinction between sex between men and sex between women and whether it's sort of strictly speaking criminalized. I think one thing we might want to take away from the Fry, cedric Rackshaw story is that these are relatively gender-conforming women. Uh, if I go back to the pictures of the three of them you know, I mean, they're not like going for high femme here, right, but they're not going to read in the context of their own time as like crossing over into another gender category, and that's part of why they're kind of able to live their lives in the way that they are. That the class element is really important, but so is the fact that they're not sort of visibly standing out as suspicious.
0: So this talk in your work is a retrospective of 100 years ago, yeah. queer history. What do you think uh, queer historians 100 years from now are going to look back and see about the present day that maybe we're not paying attention
2: to? So the question was what uh, what would historians 100 years from now look back and see about queer history, like, like the queer history that's happening now in the present? Um, I don't usually like to pronounce in the present day, but you asked that question in an interesting way that lets me put my historian hat on. And um, I'm not the only person to say this, and you guys might have noticed this too, but one of the things that I think is really happening now and has been happening for the last 20 years or so is that the sort of the relationship, how we think about the relationship between gender and sexuality is changing. Um, So for most of the period I would suggest between about 1930 and maybe like 1990 or 2000, the main categories that people used to make sense of sexual and gender diversity were heterosexuality and homosexuality. Right, or sort of gay and lesbian, if we want to think about the homosexuality side, right? And the categories gay and lesbian in the 20th century could contain a lot of gender diversity. Um, and there were a lot of like you could be a, a lesbian and be a lot of genders. You could be a gay man and be a lot of genders. Uh, and the people who wrote that history in the second half of the 20th century, they often would sort of look at look at gender diversity and say, well, this is a story about homosexuality. This is a story about queerness, because they were using those categories, of like starting from the point of sexual orientation. And now actually I think, I mean, certainly we're sort of undoing some of that. And in my academic field, trans history is like way on the rise. Um, and we're sort of going back over and do some of that work and reinterpreting it through a trans lens and saying, hey, well, is, is what's important here really sexual orientation or is it maybe kind of transness or gender crossing or gender diversity? Um, but I also, I, my guess, I mean, who knows, you know, you can sort of, do a seance with me in 100 years and see. But <laughs> like I would imagine that one of the things that people might take away when they take stock of our period is um, maybe about the ascendancy of kind of gender diversity and gender crossing as the sort of the primary way of thinking about gender and sexual diversity. And um, certainly about the undoing of that kind of hegemony of, heter- of homosexuality and sexual orientation, but also maybe kind of going to the other side right and uh and sort of starting from a point of thinking about gender and then thinking well gender can kind of include a lot of sexualities within it um but you know i could be wrong we'll have to see (laughs) ben has a question you have a question
1: um first of all thank you for this wonderful talk i I learned so much um i want to ask you about the role of universities in society so you. you quoted Eve Kosofsky's Sedgwick towards the end of your talk, who I know. I, I, also, I told before. you I, w- I,
2: I, the, the, I told you that Sedgwick wasn't in the talk, and exactly. I was wrong. And I you forgot. told me yesterday
1: that there wasn't no Yves Sedgwick, but there is. It's okay. Um, I forgive you. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so one of the concepts that Eve Sedgwick is really known for um, in the eighties and nineties in queer theory is categorizing ideas of gender and sexual difference as either minoritizing or universalizing. So minoritizing. Uh, might be saying, like, you're just born gay or straight. Yeah. Universalizing might be like, sodomy is a sin that anyone <laughs> may be tempted into. So, um, but in the third moral that you offered us, you I, I was struck that you kind of offered us a minoritizing view of the role of universities in society, that universities are places mm-hmm. where people who um, don't Fit in in other ways uh, based on their nature will go, and I see this in the Renaissance and the early modern period that I study. Where, you know, uh, where do you go if you don't want to get married and have kids? You can just go into the church, like every, you know, younger son, and you don't have to sort of deal with that. Um, But I'm wondering if there's also a universalizing interpretation of what universities uh, do in society, that these are also spaces where we work out the kind of concepts and ideas that then get disseminated into society more widely. And I think Gianton Simmons' work is almost, uh, you know, one of the uh, kind of foremost examples that comes to mind. Um, So as a historian... Do you, how do you juggle these two competing interpretations of what universities do in society and do you think the role of universities has changed over time because the way that they yeah. live uh, as kind of resident faculty is different from yeah. today.
2: Yeah, I'm going to hope that the microphone picked that up because I don't think I can summarize it, but I'll sort of say two <laughs> things in response to that. Um, one is about the specificity of this time period in this national context. So in this period in Britain, about 2% of the 18 to 25 age cohort goes to university. So that's much lower than it is in the U.S. in the same period. And it's much lower than it is in either Britain or the U.S. today, where in both cases about half the population goes to university, right? So in this moment, this is really a minority, right? It's a very narrow set of people. It's not necessarily a very elite set of people, uh, it relates to the fact that in this time you didn't really need a degree to pursue a lot of professional careers. Um, it was sort of not an obvious kind of step in a life path for most people, especially for most women, uh, but even for most men. So this in this period, this is a very, like, tiny group of people and, uh, and a very non-normative life experience. And uh, so I wouldn't want to, like simplistically equate this thing with like universities today because they're not the same space, right? And they're not the, they don't have the same role in society. Um, that being said, I think one of the things that's really interesting is the relationship of university to the life cycle and sort of senses of time and one's kind of chronological relationship to the university. Because so my, in my work, I look at you know faculty, students, administrators, I look at donors, some of whom themselves went to university and some of them didn't, politicians, some of them who went to university and some of them didn't, members of the media who talk about higher education, right? So all of those people have different kind of chronological relationships to the university. Some of them have cycled through it, right? They, they went to college, they got a degree, they left, they go on to the rest of their life, and the university is a memory for them. And it may have played a formative role in their young adulthood, you know, some of them stay, right? And they make lives in higher education. And those are the ones who it might be, you know, they're like sort of pursuing this alternative life path, Um, especially these women, right? Outside of marriage and reproduction. Uh, and, And then, you know, there are some of the people who have a really... You know, influential role in universities, either because maybe they fund one or they make policy around them or they create controversies in the media around them, right? Who maybe didn't go to college themselves and they don't have that personal experience. Uh, And so, you know, there's all these sort of different senses of time in terms of what your relationship to the institution is, whether it's brief or whether it's extended. Um, and I think that speaks to the minoritizing universalizing point, right? That, um, for, for some of my historical actors, it's their whole world. And for some of them, it's like a brief, but formative moment in their lives. Um, and that's, you know, true for all of us in this room too, right? You know, uh, for some of us, it's our whole lives. <laughs> Certainly that's me <laughs> and, and for some of us, right, we're gonna, you know, it's a wastage on, on the way to something else.
1: And I think we have time for one last question. Just as a reminder, Brown College folks and guests, we're going to convene after for a reception at Jim's house on the Hill. For my class, you'll have the engagements experience where there's food and activities uh, out on the lawn and in old um, uh Yes?
3: So I wanted to get started. I can see. Yes. I wanted to continue on your point of calling the women's residential colleges families and ask you kind of about the concept of a Wilson marriage or a Boston marriage as Mm -hmm. it's rather across the pond. Uh, What are the social implications of society recognizing the partnership between two academic women as kind of whether in serious or in just equivalent to a heterosexual partnership?
2: Yeah, so the question was about what in the U.S. has been called Boston marriages. So basically partnerships like Fry's and Sidgwick's and what kind of how society would have responded to, to such couples. Um, and again, I think that the key there partly, like that is a legible social category, right? That's something that, you know, people kind of would have processed and understood. And I think we can see that in the ways that people like respond to Fry after Sidgwick dies, right? All these people write letters of condolence to Fry. They say, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. We all know what she meant to you. Um, you know, you must be devastated, this kind of thing, right? And, you know, is even writing to her mother saying, you know, I'm kind of like a war widow. Um, so this, like, this is relatively legible, and it doesn't have to be that people are saying, oh, well, you know, the, the people don't have to be using the language of marriage. They don't have to be sort of explicitly in so many words saying, well, this is exactly like if you had a husband and wife, and isn't it a shame that the state doesn't recognize your relationship? But, you know, they don't, they don't have to quite... Be articulating it in that way for them to see. Well, this is really significant, and this is a category that can exist, right? Two women who are in some kind of committed partnership with each other, um, and I think that part of the key to that, and this relates to the other point about kind of the law and whatever, right? Yeah, you know, again, I think the key to that partly is their gender conformity, right? They don't stand out as socially like dissonant. Um, and they're able to fit into this category that exists, right, of kind of a domestic partnership, uh, because they're not challenging the gender order in sort of more fundamental and troubling ways. Um, and you know, my my sense of this sort of early 20th century period, and this also speaks to the point about you know the relationship between gender and sexuality. My account of this early 20th century period would be that in general gender deviance is more troubling to society than sexual deviance. Um, and it's also partly that, like, in most cases the sources won't tell us whether women in these kinds of partnerships were sexually, physically intimate. Um, I don't think that's a very interesting question, or it's not a question that I'm particularly interested in in my own research, um, because it's like, you know, I don't know, it doesn't help me to understand the, imp- the ways that they were important to each other Uh, But, um, uh, you know, so it's hard to say whether, oh, well, if people, if we knew one way or another whether they were sexually intimate, whether that would, like, change people's opinion of them at the time, right? Um, I think probably most people at the time are not thinking about them in those terms, though there are some exceptions to that rule where we know that a couple was sexually intimate and people didn't really care. But... uh, um, I think we want to in general, sorry, this is really long. Uh, I think we want to in general kind of suspend our, There's, I think there's a tendency in the present to imagine that people in the past always had really benighted and prejudiced views, and that we're so much more enlightened now, and we're so much more like tolerant and accepting and inclusive of, you know, sort of queer and trans people or whatever it might be. And Actually, a lot of time in the past, at least in like 19th to 20th century Britain, I mean, I can't speak to all times and places, but in in what I study, right, a lot of the times people didn't really care, you know? And there's tons of historians have documented that, you know, XYZ man in England in 1950 like brings his boyfriend over for Sunday dinner every week and people and his family are like, great, you know, it's Jim's friend and like, you know, (laughs) That, that doesn't and, and you know that doesn't mean that they're belittling Jim's relationship with his friend, right? That doesn't mean that if they knew they know they know that Jim and his friend are sleeping together, right? <laughs> and they're saying they don't care, the parents, right? They're saying Jim's friend is welcome at Sunday dinner, right? And that's that you know in some ways that's the most common kind of way that queerness figures in like ordinary. British life is that it's not typologized as such. I mean, ordinary British life in the past, right? You know, it's not ty- typologized as such, but it's also not usually sort of fixated with this like persecuting gaze at the state and stamped out. Um, obviously, there are moments when that does come up, but it's, you know, we don't hear about the cases where it doesn't come up. Um, and. I think I'm rambling but I'll leave you with that sense of complexity and we can talk more about it at the reception. Please join me in thanking Dr. Thank you all so much for coming.
1: Dr. Emily Rutherford is the Brock Jr. Research Fellow in History at Corpus Christi College in Oxford. Listeners can learn more about uh, about their work at emilymrutherford.com.
0: Symposia is a production of the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and of Brown Residential College at the University of Virginia. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.